This is the Old Radio Show's podcast. This is Henry Simon bringing you another story from my files here at the Missing Persons Bureau. In these stories of the Missing Persons Bureau, dramatized for Henry Simon by Ross Napier, names and addresses have, for obvious reasons, been changed. In one moment, the search for Frederick Lang. Address unknown. again is Henry Simon. My father was a man who believed in getting value for his money. Perhaps this had something to do with his Scottish ancestry. Or perhaps it was just because he didn't like being taken down. However, whatever the reason might have been, its effect was very keenly felt by every single member of his family, including myself. There was the question, for example, of my schooling. No expense was spared. I was sent to the very best schools and given what was generally regarded as being the very best education which money could buy. In return for this, of course, I had to work and work very hard in order to justify the investment, so to speak. At the end of every term, when I was back home on holidays, Father made a practice of looking at my books in order to ascertain for himself just to how well I was progressing. If he was satisfied, then he'd say nothing. If not, I was in trouble. Now I expect you're asking yourself where all this is going to lead. Well, the answer is that the story which I'm about to relate concerns a certain schoolboy who underwent a similar reckoning with his father at the end of every school term. In this case, the father was an eminent geophysicist named Harold Swanson, and the boy was his youngest son, Anthony. You, uh, wanted to see me, father? Yes, my boy. You and I do for a little chat. Sit down. <laughs> I've just been checking through your books. A prominent feature of which appears to be a serious mathematical decline. I got a pass in the exam. You call 51% of pass. Old Bite Harris only got 20. I'm not concerned with Old Bite Harris. No, Father. Hmm. Grammar. Fair only. Oh, did you read my thesis on scientific progress? I did, very thoroughly. In particular, the section dealing with relativity. As a matter of fact, it's about that I want to speak to you. I thought you'd be pleased. Pleased is hardly the word I'd use. Shocked would be more to the point. Shocked. And more than a little bewildered. You didn't like it? No, it isn't a question of whether or not I liked it. It's a question of where you got hold of the data. Don't tell me you picked it up in any classroom or read it in any book because you didn't. I, I don't understand it. It's just a sort of essay. Sort of essay? Nothing. It's a scientific thesis that would do credit to Einstein himself. You did like it, then. Where did it come from, Tony? Oh, I know where. I just made it up. I see. Then perhaps you'd be good enough to explain to me the significance of this formula you've evolved. Hmm. Uh, significance? In relation to the conclusions you've drawn on atomic power. 
Oh, it, it, it's all written there. Yes, I can see that. But I want you to explain this theory verbally. Well, it, it's very involved. So involved, in fact, that you haven't the vaguest idea of what it's all about. I... And how could you be expected to? There wouldn't be more than a handful of scientists in this country today who even ever heard of it. Such was the prelude to a case that had its beginning to the Missing Persons Bureau when I was visited here in my office two days later by Harold Swanson himself. The date was December the 18th, 1948. I tell you, Simon, I was completely staggered when I read this thing. Yes, I can well imagine. Tony's an exceptionally bright lad, but... Well, as I said, it was by far the most brilliant and advanced thesis on relativity I've ever come across. That includes papers by both Abel Rubenstein and Carl Schwartz. So, quite obviously, the boy couldn't possibly have written it himself. Well, he hadn't so much as the vaguest notion of what it was about. The point was, however, he refused to divulge its source. For three solid hours, I cajoled, I threatened, in an effort to force the truth from him, but to no avail. He persisted with this absurd story that he'd written it himself. Finally, I handed him over to his mother to see what she could do with him. And... Well, being the woman she is, she soon had him talking, which made me rather furious with myself for not having thought of the idea sooner. <laughs> Quite. Yes. It appears he got it from the gardener. The gardener? At school. The fellow who called himself Lang. He um, asked an advertisement. It was taken on there about oh, 12 months ago as a sort of general factotum about the place. Attending the gardens and lawns was only part of his job, but he was known officially as the school gardener. Uh-huh. Gone? Well, it seems he and Tony got very friendly. And to cut a long story short, spent quite a good time together. Out of school hours, of course. Mm-hmm. Used little Lang's cottage. Apparently it became quite a thing for Tony to visit him there every evening after prep. He was actually living in the school grounds? What? Yes. Uh, to begin with, the, the, the big attraction for the boy was the fellow's library. Or perhaps I should say his collection of scientific books. From what I gather, he had hundreds of them. Everything from Archimedes to Einstein. Very peculiar hobby for a gardener. Yes, well, that's what Tony thought at first. But little by little, he discovered there was... A great deal more to language met the eye. For instance, he spoke five languages fluently, excluding English, which he claimed was his native tongue. Claimed? Well, she told me he was never sure. He, he seemed to think he had a faint accent. But that, as it may, however, he, he was responsible for the thesis that Tony brought home. It was copied from some documents found at the back of one of his books. And found by Tony? Yes. He was delving about and they dropped on the floor at his feet. Did Lang know that he copied them? No. What about the original documents? Well, he put them back in the book. And then submitted a thesis to his physics master, eh? Who scorned it, ironically enough. But, of course, one couldn't expect a mere schoolmaster to recognize it as anything but the idle, if imaginative scribbling of a 13-year-old. And so, in turn, it came to you. Yes. And had I been other than I am, of course, I'd undoubtedly have scorned it myself. But having been engaged in atomic research for the past six years, I realized its significance at once. Ah. All of which, of course, would account for your son's reticence about telling you the truth. Exactly, but it wasn't so much that he knew he'd done wrong in copying down the notes without Lang's permission. It was more that he was afraid Lang might have to suffer the consequences of his act. Uh, for one thing, the menial staff of the school was strictly forbidden to fraternize in any way with the pupils. And if it had become known that Lang was friendly with Tony, he'd have been dismissed on the spot. I see. So it was in order to protect Lang rather than himself. Unquestionably. But who could the fellow be? How could he have got hold of such data? Well, according to Tony, the documents were in his handwriting, so presumably he formulated it himself. Which would, of course, indicate that he's a physicist of some genius. Of great genius. Have you confronted him at all? 
That's just it. He's not there to confront. Oh? No. He turned in his job eight days ago, on the last day of term. I checked with the headmaster. Unfortunately, that's all he could tell me, just that he'd gone. Without giving any sort of indication of where he was going or what his plans might be? Not so much as a hint. You've come to me because you want him traced, is that it? In a nutshell. Why exactly? Well, I should have thought that was obvious. A man who possesses such knowledge could be of invaluable use, not only to myself and my colleagues, but to the country as a whole. On the other hand, if the same knowledge was to be directed into alien channels, it could be extremely dangerous to us all. Under those circumstances, isn't this more a job for the security people? Well, technically speaking, yes, but my colleagues and I feel that a private inquiry might be more effective. Whoever this fellow is, we want him handled with kid gloves. I see. Have you got any clues at all as to his identity? Oh, not sure. It, it's, um, it's been suggested he could be German. Oh. And as you know, um, or, may, or may not know, Hitler had a team of scientists engaged in atomic research right through the war. Yes. Um, they were on the verge of perfecting the atom bomb when the end came. Indeed, they had perfected it. Fortunately for us, however, they were never in a position to utilize it. But the fact remains they were years ahead of either Britain or America in their research. So far ahead that we still haven't caught up with him. And this thesis bears the stamp of German brains. You say he had a slight accent. Tony said he had, yes. No one else supposed to have noticed it. The, the headmaster was under the impression that he was a Welshman. How did he get the job exactly? Well, as I said, he answered an advertisement. Well, surely he must have been called on to produce references and so on. References mean very little. They, they can so easily be faked. Actually, he was taken on a month's trial. His work was found to be satisfactory, and at the end of that time, he was offered permanent employment. I should have thought a German would have found it extremely difficult getting into the country, especially one who had occupied a position of any importance in them. Hitler's eyes. Well, difficult, yes, but not impossible. Aliens of lesser intellect are filtering through by the dozen. But for the moment, that's beside the point. Mm -hmm. I have a photograph here which I'd like to look down to. It was taken at a scientific convention dinner at Munich in 1938. As you can see, Hitler himself was presiding. As usual. Mm. To his right, Hess, Goebbels. Oh, I see. Rosenberg there. Rosenberg, Schacht, a whole herd of Nazi bigwigs. And here to the left, a number of the country's top scientists, presumably seated near Hitler in order of their precedence. There's uh, von Fehling, Professor Grotman, Dr. Hans Stribling, and at the extreme left, Frederick Langsdorff. Now, you probably won't recognize any of them, but their faces are quite familiar to me. In point of fact, I was in attendance at that very dinner. I don't see you there. Oh, I was placed at a discreet distance from the Fuhrer. I've always regretted the fact that I didn't have a revolver, Andy. I imagine that's a regret shared by a number of people. Yes, indeed. However, to continue, every one of Hitler's leading scientists has been accounted for since the war, with two exceptions. Uh -huh. Felix Weiner, who was Gottman's assistant, and Frederick Langsdorff, who's pictured here. Neither have been heard of since before the German surrender. Now, at home, I also have a snap of Viner, which I clipped out of an old magazine. Yes? I showed both pictures to Tony. Viner's meant nothing to him. But when I showed him this one of the group, he immediately picked out Langsdorff. He couldn't be sure, of course, but he said there was a definite likeness there. A likeness to the gardener? Yes. In itself, it doesn't mean a great deal. But consider the two names. Frederick Lang, Frederick Langsdorff. That's right, Mr. Simon. I'm not absolutely positive it's the same man, but it looks very like him. And you think that he had a faint accent, eh? He uh, had a funny way of pronouncing his O's. I can't imitate it, but it was, well, funny. I see. 
Did he ever happen to speak of his personal life at all? No, never. But gosh, I, I wish someone would tell me what's going on. Where is he? What's happened to him? I'm afraid we're all in the dark there, old chap. That's just what we're trying to find out. Henry Simon returns to continue this story in just a moment. And here again is Henry Simon. It was Swanson's idea that I should question his son to satisfy myself on a number of scores about which I was very dubious. Moreover, he was keen that I should speak to the boy alone, which I did, while his father waited in the outer office. He was a fine-looking lad and seemed rather older than his years, but he was obviously quite determined to say nothing at all that might in any way harm or discredit his former friend and companion. He was good to me, Mr. Simon. I, I wouldn't like to see him get into any trouble. There's no reason why he should, Tony. As I know, he's done nothing wrong. Unless, of course, he entered the country illegally. In which case, the worst that can happen is that he'll be sent back to whatever country he's come from. But let's not dwell on that possibility. For the moment, I just want to talk to you about his mode of living, his um, habits. Did he live alone in his cottage? Yes. He had no family? Not that I know of, although... Yes? I once asked him why he wasn't married. He said he used to have a wife, but she was killed in the war. Did he say where or how? No, I just supposed it was an uh, air raid or something. Did he ever happen to mention his past life, where he'd come from? What he'd done for a living? No. Did he say what he did during the war? No. He wasn't in the army, though. Oh? He had a lot of scars on his neck. I thought they were bullet wounds. When I asked him, he said he'd never been shot at or held a gun in his life. Did he tell you how he came by them? He just laughed. He said he came by them honestly. What did they look like, exactly? Well, sort of like deep cuts or, or gashes. Hmm. Dueling scars, perhaps. Dueling scars? Before the war, dueling was very popular in certain parts of Europe. Not dueling as you read about it in books, but dueling as a sport. With swords? Of a special type, yes. Gosh! It was practiced quite a lot at the universities, even in some schools. Well, I wish they practiced it here. Where in Europe? What country? Well, I believe a little was down in Sweden. But the home of dueling, of course, was Germany. Possibility was fast becoming probability, as one by one indications of our quarry's origin were being brought to light. The accent, the scars, the very description of the man all pointed in one direction. This, quite apart from his likeness to the photograph of Frederick Lansdorff, the similarity of the two names, and his apparent scientific background. At this point, however, it became necessary to broaden our field of inquiries, and with this end in view, Agent Bob Hunter travelled to Sudbury in Dorset, where he interviewed Dr. Samuel Winter, who is the headmaster of Cranberry College, in his private residence on the edge of the school grounds. I must confess, Mr. Hunter, that I find myself more than a little puzzled at this sudden display of interest in a man such as Lang. He struck me as a very ordinary type of fellow, honest, hard-working in his way, but uh, 
By no means a person of any outstanding qualities. Yeah, well, we're just interested in tracing him, sir. As I explained on Mr. Swanson's behalf, other than that, I am afraid I'm not at liberty to discuss the man. Most mystifying. Now, yeah, well, at your convenience, I'd kind of like to see over the cottage occupied by Lang. You, you say you inspected it yourself? Merely to check that all was in order. Was it? More or less. Uh, you didn't leave anything behind by any chance? Anything that might give me some lead as to where he's gone? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, there were some old newspapers in the cupboard which I left there. Newspapers always handed to have about the place, of course. Yeah. And uh, uh, before he left, did he ask for a reference of any sort? Oh yes, yes, he did. Uh, the normal character reference. You gave him one? Certainly. He always did his job well. And I had no hesitation in stating as much on paper. Uh, tell me, sir, did he give you the impression he had another job to go to? Well, uh, I assume so. Otherwise, why should he have left? Mm. Well, I guess I'll take a look through those newspapers. There may be something there. I, uh, I don't quite follow. Well, that's how he got this job, isn't it? Answering an ad in the newspaper. Oh yes, yes, of course. I see what you mean. How very astute of you to think of such a thing. Oh, not really. It's my business. Like yours is feeding knowledge into kid. <laughs> Mine's picking up the scraps where I find them. November 14th, situation's vacant. Anything there? Uh, how are you making out? Oh, no luck so far. I finished this pile here. November 16th. Oh, 15th, missing. Ah, uh, no, here it is. <laughs> I say, this is rather jolly. You chaps must lead a frightfully exciting lives. Mm, we have a dull moment. Mm. December the 8th. Hello. Hmm? Hello, what have we here? Where? This page. A small section appears to have been cut out. <clears throat> An advertisement for ladies' swimsuits. Well, let's have a look. What's on the other side? The personal column, huh? Could be something. Yes, but the, the section in question is missing. How can you tell what was there? Elementary, my dear Watson. I just go get me another copy. Oh. It was a simple enough job for Hunter to get hold of another copy of that same paper from the backstage department for newspaper office concerned. And this he compared with the other, quickly locating the item which had been cut out of the personal column. Hey, listen to this, Chief. Really deep stuff. The cock crows, the chicken has flown the coop. Be all your dreams, happy dreams, henceforth. Is that all? Wasn't that enough? Well, then. Oh. Well, Chief, come on. You were with intelligence during the war. It should be right down your alley. Be all your dreams, happy dreams, henceforth. Yeah. It looks to me as if it could be a phone number. Uh-huh. Well, the cock crows, chicken has flown the coop business was probably prearranged between the parties concerned. Uh, sort of like a password, huh? Yeah, exactly. Chief. Yeah? Where's the phone number coming to work? Be all your dreams, happy dreams, henceforth. That's seven uh -huh. words. My first three begin with letters B-A-Y. Bayswater. Yeah. Now, the remaining four could, of course, correspond with numbers. D-H, D-H. Now, D is the fourth letter of the alphabet. H is the eighth. So we have four, eight, four, eight. eight. Bayswater, four, eight, four, eight. Well, I could be wrong, but it's worth a try. No sooner said than done. B, A, Y, four, eight, four, eight. <clears throat> it's ringing, anyway. Mm -hmm. Hello? 
Hello, uh, telephone exchange here. We're having line trouble. Yours seems to be crossed with the Kensington number. Uh, that is Bayswater 4848, isn't it? That's correct. Uh, uh, the address again? 40 Grogan Place. A block of flats, is it? Yes. Uh, fine. We'll be sending a man around. Uh, the flat number? Five. Thank you. Chief, I think you hit the bullseye. Oh, exactly. Oh, the guy I just spoke to didn't, didn't have what you'd call an accent, you know, but uh, just his O's, like young Tony said of Lang. Hard to imitate, but definitely off-key. Oh, good afternoon. Oh, uh, come in, please. You'd be the man from the telephone exchange. Sorry, wrong number. I beg your pardon? Hunter's the name, Missing Persons Bureau. From the description he'd been given by Tony Swanson... Hunter knew at once that he had his man. That is, he had Frederick Lang. But, of course, whether or not he had also snared Frederick Lang's door had yet to be ascertained. There was no denying Lang's likeness to the former German scientist as he was pictured in Swanson's photograph. He looked a good deal older and carried much less weight. But his features were identical. You don't deny you're Frederick Lang, former gardener at Cranberry College? Of course not. Why should I? Maybe I can best answer that by showing you the photograph. You went under a different name then. I... I don't understand. Your real name is Langsdorf, isn't it? Frederick Langsdorf? You know, Mr. Hunter, it's an odd thing. For almost three years, I've been in an agony of suspense, waiting for someone to throw that question at me. And now it's finally come, I'm almost glad it's over. Yes. I'm Frederick Langsdorf. If you don't mind, I'd be interested to know how you traced me here. There's an ad in the personal column of the Daily Chronicle. It's quite a teaser, but my chief used to be of military intelligence. It's pretty well up in that sort of thing. Uh, who was the message from, by the way? Ilsa, my wife. Uh-huh. We were separated when the Russians occupied Berlin. And because of the position I'd held, I knew I'd never be safe anywhere but in this country or America. I see. Now, the arrangement was that I would leave first and that Ilsa would follow three months later. Mm-hmm. There was no fixed time or meeting place. It was quite impossible to know where or when we would be reunited. So it was decided that directly she arrived and had found somewhere to live, Ilsa would place an item in the personal column of the Chronicle, which was a paper we both knew. Uh-huh. Uh, well, such was our plan. And in the March of 1946, I arrived here, expecting Ilsa to follow me sometime in June. Unfortunately, before leaving Berlin, she was foolish enough to visit a relative in the Soviet sector and was detained for an indefinite period. I see, yeah. uh, At the time, of course, I had no way of knowing this, but as the months slipped by, I kept on hoping for the miracle that would bring us together again, mm-hmm. every day watching the personal columns of the Chronicle. Yeah. Well, uh, two years passed. My hope dwindled to nothingness. I gave up all hope of ever seeing her again. But I kept reading the Chronicle more by habit than anything else. Mm. Till one day, a little under two weeks ago, I picked up the paper and there it was, staring me in the face. The cock crows. The chicken has flown the coop. They decoded the phone number and duly contacted her here. I could never describe the thrill I had on hearing her voice again. Mm. Tell me, how did she come by this flat? Oh, she was fortunate. She went to an agent in Earl's Court and he sent her straight here. And that same day, she signed the lease for three months. Mm. she here now? I'm expecting her any minute. She's out shopping. 
Yeah, well, I guess I'll kind of stick around. I suppose it's it's no use my telling you I was never a member of the Nazi party, nor in any way a subscriber to its doctrine. Well, you seem to kind of hit it off with that old folk, eh? I was tolerated by Hitler only because I was of value to him, as were a number of my associates. Mm-hmm. Many of us were married men, and for the sake of our wives and families, we had no option but to do as we were ordered. Mm. It's a poor excuse, I know, but it's the best I can offer. Henry Simon returns to conclude this story in just a moment. And here again is Henry Simon. Following Ilse Langsdorff's arrival at the flat, Hunter immediately phoned our client, who lost no time at all in joining them. It was subsequently decided that the Langsdorff should voluntarily place themselves in the hands of the authorities, and that both Hunter and Swanson would stay out of the picture until such time as they were needed. Following an official investigation, Frederick and Ilse Langsdorff were granted permission to remain in England, and Hitler's former scientist is now in the pay of the British government. Let us hope that such a liaison will prove beneficial, not only to the parties concerned, but to the whole of the free world. And now, this is Henry Simon, inviting you to meet me here again, and for the present, bidding you au revoir. (laughs) 